Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Alexandra Ortolia-Baird, a host of the channel, and today I have a great pleasure of talking to Mark Somos and Anna Peters, who are the editors of the new volume, The State of Nature, Histories of an Idea, published by Brill in 2021. Anna and Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hello. Thank you both so much for being here. It's such an exciting volume to talk about and and one that feels very timely, um, in fact. So, but before we we kind of dive into talking about some of those more timely aspects, I was wondering if you could both introduce yourself um, to listeners and maybe tell us a little bit about how you both came to collaborate on the book um, that's just come out. Thank you very much. My name is Mark Somos, and I work at the Max Planck Institute for Comparative Public Law and International Law. As <clears throat> so an undergraduate, I, I studied medieval history, and I, I, I loved it. But it fueled an interest in the history of political thought, which I pursued in a master's degree before I turned to political science proper for my first PhD. The most fascinating parts of that turned out to be constitutional law and international relations. I also continued writing about legal history, the multi second PhD in law. And I found that history, political science, and law are more specialized and distinct now than they used to be. So the figures I studied, such as Jean Baudin or Hugo Grotius or John Locke, even John Adams and James Madison, thought of them and used them as aspects of an integral whole with no disciplinary boundaries. And that original integrity feels natural and fertile to me to this day. And so after teaching in UK and US law, political science and history departments for over a decade, and seeing my students respond to that original flexibility of these disciplines, I was very grateful to join Anna at the Max Planck Institute for Public International Law in Heidelberg, where this combination is encouraged and supported. You wouldn't be able to write this book on the state of nature, I think at any of the other places where I've worked, without having to involve multiple departments and spending time developing a shared language and methodology first. 
Regarding the book itself, the theme was a burning and obvious choice. Most people know about the state of nature, whether from Hobbes or Locke or Rousseau or Walls or a similarly well-known thinker. And I've read and written about it in school. But until in 2002, Yanis Evrigenis, a fellow PhD student at Harvard, and I had these simultaneous Eureka moments. And we realized that the state of nature is not like most other legal devices or fictions. It has tremendous creative power. It is not used like most legal fictions, for instance, the early modern invention of the corporate form that we now call a joint stock company. In the hands of Hobbes and Rousseau, the state of nature creates worlds, forms rights and obligations, supports first principles of individual dignity and political legitimacy that are then applied consistently and with far-reaching consequences to a whole range of constitutional and international arrangements. Yonis went on to write an excellent book by the state of nature in Hobbes, and I wrote one on the state of nature's role in the American Revolution. It wasn't until I started working with Anna at the Max Planck Institute that I learned about the historical background and current applications of innovative legal constructs, such as the crime of aggression or global constitutionalism, that I finally found the proper context for the state of nature. And so this is the first place and the first colleague that allowed me to recombine history, political thought, and law as they used to function in conjunction until quite recently. Some current legal scholars are trying to develop legal fictions and innovative reinterpretations of existing legal categories to answer urgent problems, from discrimination to environmental harm. And although the state of nature is familiar to us now, when Puffendorf or Grotius used the concept, it was new and fresh and capable of innovation that was as striking as legally effective as, for instance, the common heritage of mankind or the precautionary principle are capable of becoming now. So I feel that in many ways, the past couple of decades have really been leading up to this point. Thank you, Mark. I think you give too much credit to uh, the Max Planck and to others because you are really the expert on the state of uh, nature and uh, you are also the lead editor uh, of this volume. I'm only an ordinary legal scholar, so I studied law in Germany and Switzerland and in the United States, but I always had an interest in international law. So I wanted to do international law from the beginning on, uh, what I finally ended up doing. Uh, and I've been a professor of international law and constitutional law in Switzerland for 12 years before moving to the Max Planck to Heidelberg, where I've been since 2013. Um, but I have no other training in history or political theory. Um, but I now currently am editing the Journal of the History of International Law. And I also co-edited an Oxford handbook on the history of international law together with a colleague, Bardo Fassbender. So that's all I can say about uh, history. And uh, I got to know Mark Somos uh, when he uh, proposed to apply for a very competitive Humboldt scholarship to come to the Max Planck, and I gladly invited him. And so he joined the Max Planck Institute as a Humboldt Fellow, and then he won an even more prestigious Heidenberg, Heisenberg Fellowship. 
And uh, that's how he uh, came to propose this joint project. And I think that Mark and his team is a really true disciplinary extension and asset to the Max Planck Institute, which is uh, formally, well, according to its denomination and library, working or dealing with public international law, European Union law, and comparative law. And now Mark, he really breathed into the Institute a spirit of all the disciplines he masters. Uh, and as I said, the state of nature is really his topic. And we're certainly going to come to talk a little bit about that crossing over of different disciplines and the particular research culture, I suppose, that's given birth to this volume. But before we do that, I was wondering if we could maybe start at the beginning, which is, you know, we're talking about this concept of the state of nature. And Mark, you've already gone into this a little bit, thank you, um, in your in your introduction. But, you know, this is a concept that's been used over the centuries and in such a variety of different ways to think about themes like rights, about property, the state, about the laws, among many other kind of different satellite concepts. And you've mentioned already that most people probably think about people like Hobbes, maybe even Rousseau when they're thinking about this term. But I wonder if you could perhaps give listeners who might not be so familiar with the topic and the concept of the state of nature, uh, perhaps broad brushstrokes overview of of, of what is this kind of state of nature and why and how has it been used by writers to date? The, the state of nature is a, is a concept, or rather a, a term of art in law, theology, political science and literature. It has been used in many senses. Some of them are connected and some of them are quite distinct. So it has been used to describe innocence or the uncultivated and untamed condition of lands or animals. The kingdom of Satan, the opposite of the state of grace, nudity, most in the 18th century, and the illegal fiction for the pre-political condition of humanity, where people gain and hold rights, some or all of which they had to give up and delegate when they combined in a political state. And this last sense has been in continuous use since Thomas Aquinas and William of Ockham in the 13th and 14th centuries all the way through early modern thinkers whom we have mentioned, such as Hugo Gracious, Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, Samuel Puffendorf, to Enlightenment theorists, including Montesquieu, Rousseau, Human Vattel, to more recent figures, such as Carl Schmitt, Robert Nozick, John Rawls, or Long Fuller. When faced with a newer political or legal problem, such as ending a civil war, replacing a monarchy with an electoral democracy, or formulating an international law doctrine of armed neutrality. Thinkers would posit their own version of the state of nature, derive fundamental principles from it, and apply it to the particular problem. For instance, by arguing that individuals cannot survive alone, therefore civil war must end, and a new polity must be formed, or that indiv individual freedoms are so fundamental that a monarch's powers are always excessive or the states will always be in a state of nature with each other. Therefore, the decision to remain neutral and continue to trade with parties that are at war with each other will always be a sovereign decision. Yeah, all the authors Mark mentioned are, of course, uh, authors who also wrote either directly on international law or natural law and international law, or are highly relevant also for international legal scholarship and practice today. 
and um, it is still absolutely common sense to claim that international relations, whose main actors are still the states, that the states among themselves are in a state of nature or are like in a state of nature. So most international lawyers who we would call to be legal positivists and international relations scholars of the realist brand, they all explicitly or implicitly espouse this view that the states are in a kind of state of nature or, as Mark would maybe say, they employ this fiction. Uh, you're probably familiar with the famous book by uh, Hadley Bull, founder of the so-called English School of International Relations with the title Anarchical Society, so society without leadership, without rules, you could say. And the forefather of this thinking is normally considered to be Thomas Hobbes, uh, whom you also mentioned. And in our book, uh, we have a chapter by Benjamin Straumann, who gives a nuanced view on uh, what Hobbes uh, might have meant and uh, how he received uh, antique writing. I can give you one more example from international law. There is the principle called effectiveness. Uh, for example, effectiveness prescribes that a government which controls the territory of a state, the effective government, will be the one which is allowed to represent the state, however evil it might be. For example, the Assad regime uh, is the government of Syria and represents the states uh, of Syria. So in a way, this principle of effectiveness leads to the leads to the situation that might makes right. Uh, and that out of the factual situation, which is brutish and nasty, uh, that legal, legal principles can flow from that. And the reason is, at least that's said to be the reason, that in international law, there is no monopoly of the legitimate use of force with a centralized entity. So that's the key difference to the state. And there is also no compulsory jurisdiction available that there would be one court to which everybody has access to resolve disputes peacefully. There are increasingly international courts and tribunals. For example, the International Court of Justice sitting in The Hague, but the jurisdiction of this court is quite limited. So only if special treaty clauses um, grant jurisdiction to the court, then it can rule, and that's pretty seldom the case. And that means that the other ways of resolving disputes, namely by resort to armed force, is still a viable <laughs> viable option in international relations. And the self-help, which are called uh, countermeasures or even reprisals, they are still they are still possible. So that's that's my kind of access point 
to the idea or concept um, of the state of nature. And the other entry point for me is uh, I'm also dealing with animal law. So um, I'm trying to actually invent a field global animal law <laughs> with the basic argument that nowadays our dealings with animals, they are also globalized. So we are in a globalized condition and that therefore we need some regulation of the problems, not only on the domestic level, but also on the international level. In any case, with regard to animals, of course, as you know, the mm, mm, the nature of man has always been described by philosophers and scientists and other uh, intellectuals in contradistinction to animals. So there has been over the centuries the debate, what makes man man? Is man unique? Uh, what distinguishes man from animals? And uh, astonishingly, these debates, they are constantly waging on and they play a big role for the moral and also legal statues that we ascribe to animals. That's a little bit of a different debate maybe, but that what has uh, what draws me or what also <laughs> brought me to, to work with Mark on that book. And I think that really encapsulates so much of, as you say, these different and variety kind of, of access points, as you call them, in the volume, right? So we've we've kind of talked a little bit about the, the more historical points, the kind of the legal, the kind of the global points, which are all captured in various kind of creative ways in the volume. So I was wondering if you might tell listeners then a little bit about the types of scholars who've actually contributed to the volume and, and their different fields and approaches, um, and maybe how that perhaps also shapes who you see as the audience for the book. You know, we're on the Intellectual History Channel here, but, you know, there's a lot of different um, uh, kind of disciplines who I can see having having a great interest um, in the volume. Thank you. You're, you're absolutely right. And we've been extremely lucky to be able to bring together 17 authors from four continents, and they, they range from fresh PhDs through professors to retired emeriti in departments of history and political science, anthropology, philosophy, literature, and law, as well as a couple of practicing lawyers. And we have known some of them for, for years from previous projects. And the few we haven't met before, we invited specifically based on their ongoing research projects. I hope you don't mind if I give a shout out to them because we are very grateful to Daniel Allaman and Pamela Edwards and Yannis Avriganis and Mary Fuller and David Gruall and Francesco Iolaro and Edward Colla and Laszlo Kontler and Emil Simpson and Tom Sparks and Benjamin Stamann and Carl Widerquist and Grant McCall, Sarah Winter and Simon Zulbuhan for their engagement, collegiality and just fantastic papers. And just to Give a few examples of why this was an unusual project. In addition to the normal rounds of external blind peer reviews, we also used an internal review system whereby each author, usually from different disciplines, commented on another chapter extensively and in writing. Before we met in person in Berlin in the summer of 2019 for a multi day workshop. And we couldn't cover all the costs of that meeting, so most participants paid out of their own budgets just to be able to participate. And the additional rounds of reviews and the costs that they willingly paid attest to the 
dedication and to the excitement that they brought to this project. And even if it sounds corny, the truth is that we are very grateful to them. Concerning readership, I think the 14 chapters will be definitely read separately by those who are interested in the state of nature and Renaissance discovery or in Victoria or Hobbes or Locke or Creatius or Puffendorf or in the state of nature used once again with its original creative potential to address urgent current problems of environmental harm or social inequality or as I mentioned, international relations and animal law. But the book will be successful, I think, if it's read in its entirety, cover to cover, and readers discover the connections between, uh, along one dimension, historical and current, and on the other dimension between legal, political and economic applications or the state of nature fiction. So the, the book as a whole aims very simply to open up our problem-solving imagination again. Yeah, um, Mark uh, mentioned all the authors and I just would like to uh, highlight in a biased way two young authors uh, who are currently two postdocs at the Max Planck Institute. The first is Francesca Olaro. She's an Italian uh, national. She did her PhD in Florence and she wrote in the book a chapter on peculium referring to what shepherds possess as a flock and peculium is exactly what is not dominium so peculium is something for all those who cannot have dominium so slaves women children and shepherds and her argument is that this provides a legal framework to think of the otherness in the state of nature i think this is a wonderful argument And the second chapter I would like to highlight is by Tom Sparks. He's a postdoc currently at the Max Planck. He's a Scottish. He holds a PhD in law also from Durham. And he, in this book, writes a chapter on the place of the environment in state of nature discourses. And uh, I mentioned these two young scholars because they are, I think, exemplary in Uh, they are lawyers, but they work on the fringes of the discipline and they build the bridges uh, to other disciplines, uh, history uh, for Francesca and uh, sociology, social theory uh, for Tom. And um, I, I recommend these chapters in particular. Oh, we'll certainly have to have Francesca and Tom uh, here to talk about their research in the future if they haven't been on already. But um, while we're on this this topic of, of the different chapters, I was wondering if you might then, um, either of you or maybe both of you, give us just a, a general outline of, of how the book is is structured and the progression that takes uh, takes us through the volume. So the, the book has 14 chapters plus the introduction. And authors and editors have the wonderful time discussing alternative ways of structuring it. By overriding themes, we have come up with multiple possibilities, such as humanity and nature, political relations, or domestic and international relations. And I think it speaks to the richness of every single chapter that no reductionist structure could be imposed. Each chapter is relevant to almost every theme that the state of nature was used to explore. So we just ended up arranging the chapters chronologically and cross-referring to each other. With no subdivision or structure that 
we are confident would have obscured more than it would have explained. But the chapter titles and each chapter's clear and succinct abstract will readily guide the reader who picks up the book. But just to illustrate the range, let me say that the first chapter sheds new light on the much-discussed relationship between Hobbes, Thucydides, and the Melian dialogue, as Anna has mentioned. The second shows that how the state of nature featured in early modern exploration narratives and mental categories of discovery. The third reviews 2,000 years of literature on things shepherds possess outside the urban legal order to show how this subaltern legal domain came to hold the state of nature in genealogies of the state. The fourth uncovers the use of the state of nature in the ideology of Spanish imperialism. The fifth shows how Locke anchored fundamental rights in the state of nature, despite appreciating the risk of turning the state of nature into a rhetorical tool for unjust and continuous rebellions. The next two chapters are profound explorations of how the family functions in the state of nature and generates laws that have the family to contribute to and control both the polity and the economy. The ninth chapter surveys early modern and enlightenment revolutionary and interstate state of nature discourses. The tenth turns to the extensive role the state of nature concept played in 18th century anti-slavery and social contract theories. The eleventh chapter locates the state of nature in the joint discourse of scientific and civil progress in 18th century Britain. The twelfth looks at central European deployments of the state of nature to understanding ethnic versus national identity and material and cultural stages of progress. The 13th throws a compelling line from early modern state of nature writer's account of humanity's environmental responsibilities to the tasks and promises of 21st century international law in the same realm. This is a chapter by Tom that Anna has mentioned. The final chapter is a high-order review of state of nature theorizing both in terms of the historical, economic, and legal ways in which such theorizing has been done and regard and with regard to rhetorical reasons why it has been done. Yeah, as Mark said, we have no internal sub-parts, uh, but just the chapter in roughly chronological order. And in fact, in the workshop and afterwards in writing, we really discuss back and forth which kind of structures one could use. There were variations which I found attractive, but each had a drawback. So this is in a way a, a quite modest result. And of course, we were aware of the quest by publishing houses and also, I think, a proper request to um, give edited volumes uh, form and shape and structure and streamline the chapters and so on. However, in this case, because of the varieties of uses and the uh, the variety of discourses, it turned out to be, it would have been a straitjacket and so we refrain from it. That can be seen as a shortcoming, uh, but that's how it is. 
but it's highly readable. I will say that <laughs> to begin with. And I, I think I think Mark is yeah, right in no, saying with that the it's abstracts and everything. Yeah, yeah, I think it, so and too. it's it Sorry, certainly yeah. should be read. I think from cover to cover. Yeah. I think that while yeah. you you know identify that so many people will pick and choose depending on yeah. their their perhaps the time that they work on their geographical you know their disciplinary yeah. backgrounds. Um, there is so much to to glean from reading it um, uh, in kind of that more comparative way, but. Let's focus a little bit on your own uh, introduction uh, to the volume. And what I want to pick up on is this concept that you've and already, and sorry, already briefly picked up on. And this is effective fiction um, and its relation to the state of nature. And this is perhaps something that people are less familiar with. I think even for those who are familiar perhaps with the state of nature might not understand it or, or have kind of thought about it in terms of this effective fiction. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you mean by this and, and what and how this understanding of effective fiction really drove you to, to actually producing the volume. Excellent question. Thank you. So as, as mentioned, the uh, the creative part of the state of nature concept is is stunning. It's just breathtaking. As you noted at the beginning, most people are aware of how Hobbes and Rousseau use the state of nature to make sense of interstate order and democratic legitimacy. But these thinkers' accounts in turn had immense real-life impact, whether or not their readers and advocates actually understood their writings. In their hands, the idea became a powerful agent on its own right, shaping the French Revolution and 20th century dictatorships. But the, our point is this, not every fiction has this sort of effect. An example that we cite in the introduction is The Great Survivor, an organism geneticists have invented recently to have them hypothesize a switch between the DNA function of reproduction in conditions of resource abundance and between the function of repairing DNA in adverse conditions. Now, geneticists do not know whether the great survival, survivor able to switch between reproduction and repair ever existed, but positing it enabled them to pursue lines of research that led to actual drugs that are now in use. What, what, what happened here? Frankenstein, or for younger listeners, Shrek, are, fiction, are fictional organisms that had not, as far as I know, affected reality the same way. There's a remarkable real-life power to this medical fiction. Now, constructing fiction is integral not only to the literary professions, but also in mathematics, economics, and law, and even in medicine from time to time. Now, some of these fictions have an obvious real-life impact. Habeas Corpus, for instance, was granted to aristocrats in Magna Carta, but was fully reinvented in the early 17th century as a right that everybody has. The American Revolution was justified with creative state of nature arguments. Some fictions have adverse effects. For instance, many Nobel Prize winning economists now argue that positing an ever rational economic person as a unit of analysis was a mistake with real life consequences. And economics must take emotions and biases into account as givens. And other fictions have no discernible effect. Now, the state of nature is effective legal fiction, which does not mean that its meaning is fixed. There are recurring formulations. For instance, the state of, na the state of nature is a place where pre-political rights live or go to hide. 
and individuals, individuals must give up state of nature rights to create the polity. But if the polity fails them, they have the inalienable right to return to the state of nature to retrieve these fundamental rights. Another recurring formulation is the state of nature as the relationship between states. Since a universal state is impracticable, the rights and obligations that states have toward each other are analogous to those that individuals had before they joined the polity. The point is that the state of nature is a legal fiction that had tremendous real-life effects through the centuries, and the variation in height was used, combined with its real-life effects, is just fascinating. Creating things out of nothing with thoughts and words is magical already, but many of the things we make out of thin air are just, frankly, boring. The state of nature is not one of the boring ones. And even a cursory look at the range of chapters in this volume will confirm this. Mark, you are really uh, into it, I think. And uh, I've noticed that you've been again oscillating between fiction and legal fiction. And that was a point of debate among us also when writing the introduction, which uh, was a back and forth process. And actually, the introduction became shorter and shorter. <laughs> so it's now pretty short. Um, and I wanted to say that legal fiction, uh, legal fiction is, of course, also something uh, which a, it's a technical legal instrument, one could say. Um, for example, the legal fiction that uh, a child born during marriage will be deemed to be the child of the husband. So that is the famous legal fiction, uh, which also has a real life effect, of course. And in international law, there is one famous legal fiction that's the so-called Vatelian fiction, because uh, it was uh, Vatel in his uh, book on the law of uh, Uh, Droit des gens who who came up with it, namely if if in a state an alien, so a foreigner, is injured, for example, his property is taken away. So nowadays that happens to foreign investors. Then it's presumed to be an injury of the state because when Vatel construed that and wrote that in that way, this was necessary to bring this harm in the purview of international law, which was at that time, or in Vatel's conception, only interstate law. So the individual investor didn't have any place in international law. And that's why the harm done to him had to be fictionized as being done harm to the state in its own national. And then the state was allowed to pick this up and to, um, to complain towards the host state for its injury in the person of that investor. And this fiction, actually, this legal fiction, it still lingers. It plays an enormous uh, role still in international law and creates a lot of confusion, although it's no longer necessary because we now have international human rights and the individuals with his or her own rights are existing and are persons in international law, but still that fiction festers around Uh, and so just an example for a, for a legal fiction, a powerful, effective legal fiction nowadays. 
It's how you know you've got a good book when you come away still disagreeing about the nature of legal <laughs> fiction. Um, but maybe then we can we can think about some of the aims if we don't agree on perhaps some of the the conclusions. But um, is is you bring up two things in in your introduction, and the first is that you say the book intends to address what you call the fragmented historiography of the state of nature as effective legal fiction, and secondly to counter what you say is the loss of creative problem solving potential in current uses due to a neglect of past ingenuity. And the second in particular, I mean, historiography is fascinating for the historians, and I'm sure, not sure <laughs> who else, but but this second element of, of creative problem solving, I think, is really f- what, what catapults the volume um, into, into really exciting territory. So I was wondering if you might tell us a little bit about why these two aims of the book are so important and, and what they really contribute to our understanding and to scholarship more generally. Thank you. So concerning the first aim, there is extensive literature on the state of nature in Hobbes or Locke or Rousseau, and a reasonable number of the thinkers whom we discuss. There is less on the state of nature and environmental justice, for instance. So some of our chapters open up new avenues already, even if you consider them as freestanding chapters. But strange to say, even the existing literature very seldom brings historical uses of the state of nature together. So that you could see what Puffendorf made of Gentry's usage, or how the interstate meaning in Hobbes had to be transformed by Vattel to be able to propose a fundamentally peaceful international order. So in this sense, putting chapters side by side and making sure that they relate to each other addresses a gap in scholarship. And the other ambition, exactly as you said, is to just show the historical ingenuity of state of nature discourses. And offer not only the state of nature, but the method of recovering legal history itself as an improved tool to the legal scholars concerned about today and tomorrow. The last chapters on environmental and social inequality and Anna's discussion of international relations and animal rights exemplify the second sort of application that we are hoping for alongside the better integrated historical understanding. Yeah, Mark, um, the the creative problem, the creativity of the writers who are studied in the book, um, that's of course something which is always within the bounds of their discipline, although of course the disciplinary bounds were different uh, in different times from today. Um, but I think that this this question of how much can you invent and how creative can you be uh, in order to solve problems of the world or <laughs> uh, uh, to put it bluntly, that's not that's not identical in the various disciplines we have in the book. Huh? So, uh, for example, for legal scholars nowadays, the limits to their creativity is clearly the legal rules as they are generally accepted to be, although there will always be diversity of opinion about how how a certain rule is to be understood, especially in international law. There is also unwritten law, customary law, and so you don't have a book to look into, and so there can be a range Uh, a broad range of understanding whether there is a rule at all and what it means and how it must be applied to the facts. But nevertheless, 
uh, legal scholarship and legal practice is based on the presumption that there are certain limits to what you can say or invent. I mean, you can say or invent it, but nobody cares because it will not be will not be accepted as forming a legal argument. So the creativity of somebody who is in the discipline of law is is limited and. Marx claimed that nowadays everybody has less is less imaginative and inventive than uh, maybe in past centuries. Also, has to do, of course, with the denser regulation of the world. Uh, so there are simply more laws, however controversial and vague they may be, uh, which pose or which kind of mm, yeah uh, are the signposts for the creative scholar. So it's a kind of limited, bounded creativity, which is possible in legal scholarship. I'm a f uh, I would be always in favor of trying to exploit it as much as possible, but there are these limits. You said it, not us. Um, <laughs> the, law the lawyer is talking about the lack of creativity, not the historians. Um, uh, one of our one of many uh, disciplinary uh, kind of differences, I suppose. But. Um, What I wanted then to kind of pick up on is, you know, you have this, you know, this huge chronological, geographical, disciplinary range and, you know, really working on this idea of creativity in the book. But there are some really clear themes and points of convergence that come out when you read the book cover to cover, when you you have it in that kind of comparative um, uh, reading. And I was wondering if, if maybe the two of you might like to maybe just pick out a couple of these, maybe someone's, I don't know, some of these points of convergence that you perhaps found unexpected that you weren't really anticipating uh, to come out of the volume perhaps thank you so i i think we mentioned a few already but um, creating units such as the family the state or an international order has benefited from positing and describing hypothetical others those who are outside the family outside the state or in a fading and war-torn international disorder. So during the preparation for the volume, we knew that bringing the chronological and geographic range that you mentioned to bear on these issues would be interesting. In terms of the unexpected, to be honest, I, I did not foresee the connections between historical current and potential future uses of the state of nature to be so vibrant and so compelling. I thought we would have to trace state of nature discourses on dignity and anti-slavery war and peace and family and the state, or human activity and the environment, meticulously through these intertwined historical trajectories to be able to bring out in full the potential that the concept holds for current problems, such as environmental harm and social inequality. But when the authors engaged and re-engaged each other in commenting on drafts and revising and linking chapters to each other, I was surprised and delighted to see these connections just come out with force and lucidity. Yeah, Mark, you are right. I have little I have little to add. I think that the theme, the themes you mentioned, namely the theme of exploitation, exploitation of humans and exploitation of uh, nature as a resource came up basically in each chapter. So, uh yeah. So go ahead and read the book in short. I think that's that's the the kind of the easiest way to to kind of pick out more of those. But m maybe then we can um, we can 
kind of move to then is, is thinking about some of these contemporary um, concerns that, that both of you have, have raised. Um, because it does, the book in many cases links or, or provides a very obvious signposting to these connections between historic uh, notions of the state of nature and, and current political, social, legal concerns. And I wonder if you might just give us a couple of examples um, uh, from some of the chapters that you thought um, that, that might be helpful for, for listeners to kind of conceptualize how this is taking shape in the volume. So we, we are trying to bring history to life and anachronism is a is a real danger. It's important to it's it's obvious but important to note that the historic notions that we are dealing with are of course reconstructions of how past thinkers dealt with their current political, social, and legal problems. So Hock Lloyd discussed in one chapter had geographic expansion and discovery. Hobbes had the civil war. Uffendorf had shattering political fragmentation. Locke had the glorious revolution. Burke and Monboddo had British responsibility for empire-wide progress and decay. Granville Sharp had slavery. Shornovich had nation building. It's very specific major challenges that they analyzed and worked on via the state of nature prism. And all of them had religion, the economy, and the family as ever-present added elements to consider while they were working on their particular tasks. So the English Civil War and the Glorious Revolution are over, and so is Hungarian nation-building, sort of. But empire and slavery are still with us. And so one obvious way in which the contributions in this volume speak to current issues is by helping us better understand these continuities. And one example that I discuss in my State of Nature book might be the US courts, which cite historical state of nature documents extensively to decide cases on gay marriage or parental rights or reasonable search and seizure and other disputes. And they perform the historical analysis of these sources almost always very badly. They don't understand the history that underpins their, their reasoning. But the high order way in which historic notions are helpful in addressing contemporary issues is the very boldness, originality, and precision in using and reformulating the state of nature concept to map out humanity's legal but suprapolitical rights, relations, and duties that I believe our collection brings to the surface. So when, when Puffendorf says we have state of nature obligations to other humans who are weak, and we have these obligations and rights to other humans help when we are weak, irrespective of the rules of the state we live in. Can such rights and obligations be easily transferred to animals based on the same or similar moral and legal foundations as those that Puffendorf and all those whom he has influenced have developed? Locke argues that we have state of nature rights to environmental resources as long as we do not waste them or deprive others of basic necessities. Can both his creative use of this effective legal fiction and the immense influence he has had on subsequent legal thinkers and legal interpretation be transferred creatively and effectively to future environmental law. And so to answer these questions, I think, you know, you have to read our book and write a few more. Yeah. Mark, you pointed to the dangers of anachronism and uh, there is currently 
in international legal historiography or scholarship uh, indeed a kind of debate about how and whether you can put the study of the history of international law to current uses and at what point you run the danger of reading history backwards and mm -hmm. presentism and uh, looking for predecessors of current legal institutions, although this does not do justice to how the legal institutions were understood in their own time. So there is this uh, label of foreign office history, <laughs> because that's exactly, of course, what the foreign offices of the world do, for example, when there is a dispute about a boundary or so that they, they look Uh, they look for evidence, for historical evidence, only with a view to making their case. So that's not um, that's not serious historical scholarship. On the other hand, I agree with Mark, who's always in favor of a usable history. That <laughs> that well, this ideal of understanding the past completely in its own terms and in the context is, of course, it's an ideal. It's a regulatory idea, which I think should guide our investigations. But of course, it is not possible because we inevitably uh, have our standpoint, which is in the present. Um, so we read the sources uh, and interpret them with our own uh, Vorverständnis, to use the term. Um, so, yeah, just asking this question and just debating it, uh, what what the past reflection on state of nature tells us now uh, already brings us into this meta debate, how, how this can be useful at all or whether it is admissible at all or whether we can draw in quotation marks any lessons at all. Um, but of course, that's always something which every scholar in legal history has to pose himself and herself again and again. So. Our book is just one manifestation of this perennial problem, I would say. But it comes at a, at a very important and salient time for that. I mean, many of these questions are coalescing today with with the current COVID nineteen pandemic, and you do actually, you know, nod to that in in your introduction. You know, we we've had so much in the media about, you know, do we, you know, are we in the state of nature? Do we need a new social contract? All of these, you know, historical um, uh, kind of concepts are, are being revised and, and kind of rethought for the for the current day. And I was wondering if you might, um, kind of picking up on, on what you've been saying already, speculate on how the book and some of the themes and the questions that it's raising actually might contribute to thinking about the current crisis and how we perhaps go forward in this. I mean, there is a huge amount of legislation and scholarship that's coming out of, of the pandemic. So I wonder if you if you might position yourself ambitiously in that in that uh, discussion. Excellent question. Thank you. But the, the flaws in interstate cooperation, vaccine development, and distribution initially reminded us of Hobbes' state of nature. That was the most obvious parallel to draw. But the reason started to gain some ground. And we saw a sort of Vatarian state of nature, in which states recognize their interdependence and pretend to cooperate, at least minimally, for moral reasons. But reality's obvious endorsement of our thesis concerning the importance of the state of nature device or fiction is that the pandemic brought home 
not in moral, but in cold, indisputable terms, that we are one species and we stand or fall together. We share a physical nature, not only in our bodies, but also in the world we inhabit an impact. And caring or not caring for each other is caring or not caring for ourselves. I would like to add that during the pandemic, the principle One Health has been brought to the fore. And this principle goes in the direction of what Mark says, but even beyond the human species, uh, by pointing to the fact that the pandemic, which is now on us, is a zoonosis, which came from animals, maybe from the bad laboratory, maybe over the wild market, um, and that it is indispensable to um, tackle human health, animal health, and the health of the planet in a comprehensive, multidimensional way because uh, the health of everyone is connected so and this is I, i think really something which is now on top of the debate uh due to covid uh that it is uh it new pandemics will come and they will come in an increasingly quicker pace exactly because humans interact with animals with wild animals uh on a more intensive uh much more intensively there are millions or myriads of um, bacteria waiting to jump on us in the rainforest, for example. Uh, so it's only a matter of time until these things ha will happen again. And um, that's, yeah, just another variation of the theme of exploitation, which I mentioned, which I've read through all the chapters. Certainly. We've come to the end um, of, of our hour to talk about um, the book, but what I'd really love to press you both on um, as, as you know, eminent scholars in your field is, is to hear a little bit about where this research is taking you. Um, you know, is, this, is this a theme that's, that's continuing to, to develop within your own um, research over the next couple of years? Um, or, or are you taking a tangent and, and moving away from the state of nature or the biological state of nature? Thank you. Um... The idea of this obsession, the state of nature, has been with me for about 20 years now. And as mentioned, I'm extremely fortunate to have come to the Institute, where this cross-disciplinary or interdisciplinary work is encouraged. And while I don't plan to pursue this theme in particular in the future, I think that our collaboration has informed the way in which I'm going to look at 21st century legal fictions as they unfold and as they are discussed at the Institute. So there's, there's just no, no better environment in the world where I, can, where, I where I can continue these trains of thought. Currently, my team and I are writing a new history upon the international law by finding every surviving copy of the first editions of Grotius's Rights of War and Peace. So there's this universal consensus that this book first published in 1625, more the beginning of modern international law. You read this in every textbook, you, you read this in just about every legal history book. I'm not sure it's true, but it's a revealing and important maxim. What is true is that most publications of international law since, since 1625 
have been commentaries on Gracious. There were hundreds and hundreds of them. Gracious also became the core of international teaching for centuries, and his books are invoked all the time in legal arguments and court decisions, both domestically and internationally to this day. But what Noah has done was to go through the annotations the thousands of scholars, lawyers, and politicians have made in their copies over the past 400 years. We have been looking at surviving copies between 1625, the first edition, and 1650, the first edition after the Treaty of Westphalia, to figure out Gershus's real reception, including the way he shaped the entire field. And this is going to be a so-called global census. Only three such censuses have been written to date because they are labor-intense and difficult, but they are highly rewarding. So there's one on Copernicus, one on Shakespeare, and one on the anatomist Andras Vesalius. And when we finish ours on Gracious in 2025, the 400th anniversary of the book's first appearance, I think we'll rewrite the history of international the same way, but the, that the other three censuses changed how we think about and understand astronomy, drama, and medicine. Uh, like Mark, I'm also not directly going to continue on the state of nature, but I have two favorite themes which are connected, namely animals and also war. And both are related to the debates on on the state of nature. I just am finishing to co-edit a book on animals in war. Uh, so it's a legal book. It's about international armed uh, international humanitarian law, the law of armed conflict, and the animals as neglected victims of war. Uh, so the various chapters investigate whether animals, to what extent they are civilian or military objects, whether they could even be likened to combatants uh, and be targeted, uh, how they should be protected as part of the natural environment and so on. And uh, I'm also co-editing a handbook on global animal law. As I said at the beginning, my basic idea is that we need a global regulatory approach to tackle the various problems animals, domestic, wild, and liminal animals face. And so together with a colleague from Harvard and a postdoc from the Max Planck, we are editing this uh, handbook. And um, I'm also constantly working on themes of the law of use ad bellum and use in bello. Uh, together with another postdoc, we edit a book series called Max Planck Trialogues. Uh, on the law of peace and war. And actually in that series, we also try as a, as a scholarly approach to invite scholars from different backgrounds in terms of worldview, uh, regional background and methodological approach to engage in a conversation in a trialogue on one single legal problem in order to tease out Uh, exactly the dependency of the legal arguments they make on their pre-understandings and to thereby to highlight the pluralism of international legal scholarship, which is necessary for it to overcome its Eurocentrism. So that's my 
current work. It sounds like a very productive next few years in Heidelberg. I look forward to seeing what comes out of it. Mark and Anna, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. A reminder to listeners, the book is The State of Nature, Histories of an Idea, published by Brill this year in 2021. Anna and Mark, thank you again for being on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alexandra, for the lovely conversation.